Welcome everyone to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing all right. House is coming together. House is slowly coming together. House is coming together at a rate that is slower than I would have liked, but probably like realistically fine. You know, so I wish we had things more set up, but I'm confident that the coming week will see much progress. Yes. How are you doing? Um, I'm okay. Uh, it's been ludicrously hot here in Calgary for a few weeks now. Um, the heat broke and got cool for a little bit, but it's really hot today. Um, it's over 30 Celsius. Uh, which is like over 86 Fahrenheit. And I know that it's hotter more south of here, but we're like northern people. It's yeah. not supposed to be this hot for such extended period of time. It's supposed to get to like over 30 for like two days in July, not like two weeks. So, At least, you know, it's not the heat dome from last year. Sure. But now we own a house that has a second floor where all the bedrooms are. So keeping that cool has been a challenge. A learning experience. Exactly. Well, speaking of learning experiences, what are we watching today? Well, Sarah, this week we are watching what might be our final Ed Wood film, oh. Night of the Ghouls, from 1959. All right, lots to explain there. <laughs> yeah, so many caveats. Yeah, let's start with uh, from... So, Night of the Ghouls was a film that was shot in 1958, had a premiere in 1959, and was never released until its home video release in 1984. Yeah, so we should be watching this in 1984. But that really doesn't fit the why we do things in chronological <laughs> <Yeah>. order thing. So especially for something from Ed Wood, who is greatly inspired by stuff from before this time and stuff going on at this time. Yeah. If we were doing things by wide release, um, we actually wouldn't have seen plan nine yet. Oh, okay. Um, I'll get into that shortly. How's about, okay. So, yeah, we've done a few Ed Wood movies by this point, so I thought it'd be helpful to do like a brief timeline of Ed Wood. So the earliest known Ed Wood project is called Streets of Laredo or Crossroads of Laredo, uh, which was never finished. It was shot silent, um, and it was shot in 1948 and eventually released in 1995. In 1952, Wood was hired to do a promotional film called Trick Shooting with Ken Duncan, uh, which was all where this like Western B-movie actor named Ken Duncan, who usually played villains, uh, did a bunch of trick shooting with like Winchester rifles and got Ed to like shoot it as a promo reel for him. Oh, okay. Um, that kind of led into some Westerns for Ed. Uh, in 1952, the film The Lawless Rider was shot, which Ed sort of co-wrote with Johnny Carpenter and Alex Gordon and co-produced with those guys. Uh, it starred Johnny Carpenter and it was directed by Yakima Knut. Uh, that was shot in 1952. 
It was not released until 1954. In 1953, Ed made Glenn or Glenda. Mm. Um, he was also involved with the Western film Son of the Renegade, which starred Johnny Carpenter, as well as a TV pilot called The Crossroad Avenger, which was not picked up. In 1954, he expanded the Crossroad Avenger into a feature uh, called The Adventures of the Tucson Kid, uh, which was also not released. Um, Can I just quickly add a sidebar here that I have no idea why Tucson is pronounced that way, but spelled Tucson. Mm. It it bothers my brain. It's likely that it's not an English word, but uh, that that's just a little a little sidebar from Sarah. All right, folks from Arizona. You know to blow up Sarah's inbox now with explanations. <laughs> 1954 also saw the release of Edwood's film Jailbait, which was mm. like a juvenile delinquency movie. Um, and The Lawless Rider was finally released. Bride of the Monster was shot in 1954. That's his film with Bela Lugosi, which is on the list. And in 1955, Bride of the Monster was released. Probably his... Highest budgeted and most successful and widest released film of his filmography. And it's pretty good. Yeah, it's decent. In 1956, uh, there was the film The Violent Years, which was another like sort of crime exploitation movie that he didn't direct, but he wrote. And Plan 9 from Outer Space was shot in 1956. In 1957, Plan 9 from Outer Space got its premiere, uh, but then it didn't have a distributor. When it had that premiere, um, we watched it for the show sort of back in 1957, counting that premiere date as its release date. Mm-hmm. Um, but what actually happened was, you know, it didn't have a distributor, then Wood sold it to Distributors Corporation of America, which then went into receivership in 1958 and didn't release the movie. And so it wasn't until 1959 that Plan 9 actually got wide release. Okay. Meanwhile, in 1957, Ed shot a pilot for what was going to be like a um, anthology horror TV series. Sure. The pilot was called Final Curtain, uh, and it was sort of like an experimental film about a guy wandering through an empty theater that may or may not be haunted. Okay. I remember you talking about this one. Yes, before. We've, we've discussed this before. Um, the show didn't get picked up, so the footage wasn't used. And then in 1958, uh, we have the film The Bride and the Beast, which Ed wrote, but otherwise was not involved in. And that's the one that involved like... A bride and a beast, yeah. Right. Um, and like, pa- it was it was a Bridie Murphy past lives film, but her past life was as a gorilla and had like weird bestiality <laughs> themes. Yeah. Uh, and then in 1958, this film... Night of the Ghouls was shot. It had its premiere in 1959, but like Plan 9, this was sort of a like rent out a theater for a night kind of and premiere. show it for the cast and crew. Yeah, and hope to get a distributor, right? Um, Plan 9 from Outer Space was finally released in wide release, quote unquote, later in 1959. And then this film wasn't released in quote unquote wide release until 1984. So this was basically shot after Plan 9, but Plan 9 was released after in terms of its wide release. Yeah. So I'm going to go into some more details about that later. But basically at the time this was shot, 
Plan 9 was in limbo due to the distribution troubles it was having. This film was intended as a direct sequel to Bride of the Monster, uh, because at the time, that was Wood's widest released and most successful film. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, so this film features Paul Marco reprising his role as Patrolman Kelton, from both Bride of the Monster and Plan 9 from Outer Space. So Edward fans consider this to be the final entry in the Kelton trilogy sure. of films. This is the last time we're going to see Paul Marco on the show, more or less, um, because he basically relied on Wood for his roles, and he probably would have died in obscurity if it was not for the fact that like Wood gained all this cult fame oh. later in the 80s and 90s, which Marco was able to use to kind of parlay into appearances at like conventions and things. Um, he would actually later reprise the role of Kelton in the 2005 spoof, The Naked Monster, before passing away in 2006. Tor Johnson also appears in this film. Uh, he reprises his role as Lobo from Bride of the Monster. So he was Lobo in Bride of the Monster. He was a police inspector turned into a zombie in Plan 9, and he's back as Lobo in this film, despite the fact that Lobo was killed at the end of Bride of the Monster. Yeah, I mean, that never stopped Universal, so why would it stop Ed Wood? Exactly. Uh, there's another returning character from Bride of the Monster in this film, Captain Robbins, uh, but he was played by Harvey B. Dunn in Bride of the Monster, uh, and in this film, he's played by Johnny Carpenter. Uh, Harvey sure. B. Dunn still appears in this film, but as like a less important role. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. The, this cowboy guy probably is helping produce this a bit. Yeah. Uh, he has a history with Wood. Um, he's actually credited here as John Carpenter, which is a little <laughs> bit confusing for horror fans. Not that John Carpenter. This guy was born Jasper Carpenter in Arkansas in 1914. And he mostly appeared in Westerns throughout his career, uh, doing sort of large roles in B movies and then like stunt work in A movies. He produced, wrote, and starred in Son of the Renegade in 1953, which was co-written by Ed Wood. And he also starred in The Lawless Rider, directed by Yakima Canut in 1954, which he co-produced and co-wrote with Alex Gordon and Ed Wood. So he had history with Wood, but this was a rare appearance by him out of the Western genre. The main villain in this film was originally written for Bella Lugosi when the script for this film was written in 1956. Sure. And uh, the villain in this film is the character of Dr. Acula. Ah, uh, Dr. Acula. Okay. Uh, and he is played by Canadian actor Ken Duncan, who billed himself as the meanest man in the movies because he mostly played like heavies in B-movie westerns and crime films. Okay. Uh, he was So born... it has nothing to do with like weight? No. Being like particularly large and heavy? No, heavy was just like an old-fashioned term for like, um, like a... A tough guy or a minion. Yeah, I was trying to be um, funny. Got it. Got it. Okay. I know sometimes my jokes are so <laughs> smart that they go over your head. So. Yeah, yeah. You have the master's <laughs> degree. So, you know, you're a little more intelligent than I am. Um, so Ken Duncan was born Kenneth Duncan McLaughlin in Ontario in 1903. And his association with Edward began in 1952 
when he hired Wood to shoot that promotional film that I mentioned earlier, Trick Shooting with Ken Duncan. Uh, Duncan also appeared in The Lawless Rider, and he also appeared in Wood's unsuccessful 1953 Western TV pilot, The Crossroad Avenger. Duncan was um, a well-known womanizer in Hollywood. Um, He had like a book that was just a list of all the women he had been in that was apparently like a pound. Wait, all the women he's been in? Yeah. That's what you said. Okay. Okay. I mean, listen, technically accurate. Um, So he has a binder full of women. Okay. Right. And he was also well known for being very well endowed. Um, Like a Hollywood makeup man of the time uh, once said that not all men are created equal. And Ken Duncan was the proof. Um, He had this kind of reputation that preceded him. On the set of Night of the Ghouls, he would whisper things to his co-star, actress Valda Hansen, between takes like, do you like tongues? Jeez Louise, that's sexual harassment guy. Yeah, she finally got fed up with him and at one point yelled, oh, shut up, uh, very loudly, uh, such that the entire crew got the attention and he felt a little bit humiliated and he knocked it off. Good. So Valda Hansen, who I just mentioned, she's Edward's new ingenue. She was a 26-year-old L.A. native who Wood had discovered after she appeared in a picture called uh, Strips Around the World as a stripper. Okay. Uh, he cast her in the role of the white ghost and got her to bleach her hair blonde for the part. She would be attached to various unfinished wood projects throughout the 1960s and despite never really like working with wood on another completed movie after this uh she spoke highly of him for the rest of her life uh believing they shared a psychic link and she passed away in 1993 of cancer oh that's too bad other wood regulars making appearances here include duke moore as lieutenant bradford And Criswell, narrating the picture. Oh, good. Criswell would appear in one further Ed Wood movie after this, the erotic horror picture Orgy of the Dead in 1965. Uh, Are we watching that? I don't know. Okay. I'm undecided. Okay. So a large portion of Night of the Ghouls consists of footage from Ed Wood's unsold pilot Final Curtain repurposed for this movie. Sure. This is kind of like the menagerie of Ed Wood movies. That's a Star Trek reference for folks who uh, might be unfamiliar. So the footage that's used of Final Curtain here is of actor Duke Moore, who in this film plays Lieutenant Bradford, kind of wandering through an empty theater. The plot of Final Curtain was that like the theater was haunted and that um, I think in Final Curtain, Duke Moore's character is like an actor or a theater manager or something. So he's dressed in a tuxedo. So in Night of the Ghouls, it's explained that Lieutenant Bradford was on his way to the opera before he was called in uh, on like an off-duty night for this um, assignment to explain why he's in a tuxedo in the stock footage, essentially. Okay. Um, There's also extensive narration over the footage in this film in order to like help tie it in with Night of the Ghouls more. And actress Jeannie Stevens... Uh, who appears in Final Curtain as the vampire, appears in Night of the Ghouls with her role recontextualized as the black ghost. Okay. 
So we have the white ghost and the black ghost. Yeah, good girl, bad girl. I get it, Ed Wood. <laughs> However, uh, Wood was unable to get Stevens basically back for like new shooting for Night of the Ghouls. Uh, so in shots where he needed to like establish her character in other scenes in wide shots and couldn't just use stock close-ups of her from Final Curtain, Wood himself doubles for her uh, wearing like a very heavy black veil in front of his face so that you can't see his face. Um, but if you have seen Glenn or Glenda and thus are kind of like used to what Ed's like silhouette is when he's practicing transvestism, you'll recognize that it's Ed Wood in a dress. Cool. That's, you know, problem solving. <laughs> so Night of the Ghouls was shot between April and May of 1958, and it had its premiere at the Vista Theater on March 17th, 1959, on a double feature with the Douglas Sirk melodrama Imitation of Life, starring Lana Turner. <laughs> Wood felt that the film needed changes. It needed re-editing. He wanted to kind of do some alterations before finding a distributor and getting it out to the public. However, he never did any of that editing because he ran out of money. Uh, specifically, he ran out of money to pay the film development lab for the negatives. So, you know, he had sent the negatives into this film development lab. They had developed them. He had done the premiere, but the negatives were in the custody, I guess you could say, yeah. of the film development lab. And the way that works is you pay the development lab and they give you the negatives back once you've paid them for the, you know, cost of development. Um, Ed couldn't pay that bill. So the development lab just held on to the movie and that bill would go unpaid for the rest of Ed Wood's life. And Wood's career would sort of continue to fall from this point on. Later in 1959, he would write the script to the nudie cutie film Revenge of the Virgins. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a nudie cutie is. I was going to ask because I don't know. So sort of like pink films in Japan. Um, in the late 50s and into the 60s, a genre of film emerged uh, that we would now probably call like softcore films featuring mostly female nudity in like narrative fiction films where just people happen to be naked a lot more than you would expect okay. in a normal movie, right? So these aren't like hardcore pornography movies where there's a focus on sex scenes. Like Revenge of the Virgins is a movie about um, Native American tribeswomen taking revenge on white settlers uh, and killing them. Only like the Native American tribeswomen are like mostly naked. Okay. That is a concept. So it's, it's kind of like... This idea of like taking advantage of the loosening of the production code, uh, releasing things outside the code to like downtown adult theaters, but you aren't making porn. You're making like real movies and then you're like, yeah, but you know, they just aren't wearing shirts kind sure. of thing. Yeah. Um, anyways, in 1960, Ed Wood would write and direct The Sinister Urge a crime drama about a serial killer that suggests that watching pornography leads to violence against women. My guy, you're making these movies. Right. Um, there's actually a scene where one of the directors of the pornographic films uh, in the movie says um, something along the lines of like, you know, I can't believe I'm making this slush. I used to make real movies. Hmm. Anyways, ironically, pornography is where Wood's career was ultimately headed. Uh, in 1965, he wrote Orgy of the Dead, um, an erotic horror film that's sort of like 
a halfway point between Woods' sort of typical old sci-fi horror B-movie style and the nudie cuties of the day. Um, by the 1970s, however, Wood was basically directing hardcore pornographic films that all still happened to have like horror or sci-fi adjacent themes, uh, okay. like Necromania in 1971. Um, and by that point, he had fallen into pretty severe alcoholism, uh, spending almost all of his money on booze and routinely finding himself and his wife, Kathy, evicted due to like non-payment of rent. In 1967, Wood was shocked to learn that he had fathered an illegitimate daughter uh, after World War II with a young woman he had dated while he was in the Marines. Uh, she basically like came out to find him when she was 21 years old. She was born in 1946 and had managed to like trace down her father's whereabouts. Um, Wood's mother, Lillian, already knew about her. She'd kind of contacted her first and found out where to find Wood from her. And she stayed over at the Woods house for a number of days before Wood's wife, Kathy, kicked her out. This gets confusing because Wood's daughter's name is Kathy and his wife's name is Kathy. But wife Kathy felt that daughter Kathy wasn't actually Wood's daughter, um, that she was like lying and trying to take advantage of them because Wood had told his wife, Kathy, that the woman he had had sex with in the 40s, who was daughter Kathy's mom, had slept with like everyone in his Marine regiment. So wife Kathy didn't believe she was really Wood's daughter and kind of felt that she was just there to take advantage of them. So she kicked her out of the house. During the last 15 years of his life, Wood depended almost entirely on writing pornography to make a living. He spent almost all of his money immediately at the liquor store to the point where, so that he wouldn't get mugged, on the way from his house to the liquor store, which happened a few times, he started having his publisher, through whom he was writing these pornographic novels, send his checks directly to the liquor store, where he would just have credit then. Wood would then regularly pawn his typewriters for cash, and um, ended up like him and Kathy living in like really bad neighborhoods in LA that were super like ridden with crime. And the two of them became alcoholics together, kind of spiraled into a lot of um, like spousal violence between the two of them to the point where like someone tried to interview Ed in the early 70s and Ed like tried to attack the interviewer with a broken bottle. Whoa. Things like that. Like things really got bad, really got dark. By 1978, his depression had worsened. They were evicted from their Hollywood apartment uh, by two sheriff's deputies who were called by their landlord due to their failure to pay rent. They were in total poverty. They were evicted and had to leave behind all of his scrapbooks and unfinished screenplays, which the landlord then like threw into a garbage dumpster. Yeah. Like, why would he keep those? Mm -hmm. They moved into the apartment of their friend, actor Peter Coe, and would basically spent the whole weekend drinking vodka and calling friends for money. On December 10th, 1978, Wood fell ill and went to lie down in Coe's bedroom while Coe and his friends were watching a football game on TV. From the bedroom, he asked these people to bring him something to drink. Uh, Kathy, who was watching TV at the time, refused to do so. A few minutes later, he yelled out, Kathy, I can't breathe, um, which she ignored because he'd been bossing her around all day and she was sick of it. 
After hearing no movement in the bedroom for 20 minutes, uh, she went to go check on him to find him dead on the bed from a heart attack. Eyes and mouth wide open, clutching at the sheets. Uh, Wood was cremated, and his funeral was attended by his wife, Kathy, Paul Marco, uh, Criswell, um, as well as David Demering, uh, which was a sort of makeshift memorial service held at Peter Coe's apartment following the cremation. And Kathy was basically devastated and spent the rest of her life kind of like in service to the memory of her husband, I guess you could say. Sure. At the time of his death, Wood's name and career had become so obscure that most Los Angeles newspapers, including Variety, didn't run an obituary about him. It wasn't until the publication of the book The Golden Turkey Awards in 1980, which listed Plan 9 from Outer Space as the worst movie ever made, that Wood's name, like, became known and he gained all of this notoriety as a cult figure. So by like three years after his death, people knew who he was. Mm -hmm. So that kind of brings us to the story of Wade Williams. Who's Wade Williams? Right. I think maybe I've mentioned him on the show once or twice before. Wade Williams is a guy who owns the rights to a lot of 1950s B horror movies whose copyright lapsed. Oh, okay. I see how he fits in here now. Yeah, and has released a lot of those movies through the DVD label Image Entertainment. And because Image isn't really like a thing anymore in the same way, a lot of those movies are now really hard to find. Um, We mentioned him specifically when talking about Invaders from Mars, which got an Image Entertainment DVD release in like, I don't know, 2002, 2003, something like that, and hasn't been released since, so it's really difficult to see uh, legally. Wade Williams was born in 1942, so he was like 10, 11, 12, you know, in his teens when these 1950s B-movies were coming out. He grew up with these movies. He grew up, like, becoming fascinated by movies, um, learning how to become a projectionist at movie theaters. Um, You know, he was a fanboy, basically. He became a film collector, so he would buy prints of these like old movies um you know become kind of an archivist when he could he would buy the rights to these movies as well like he would try to buy the original negatives he went into film production kind of putting up some money for some cheap b movies in the 60s that ended up um being a good return on investment getting him the money to like buy more films and then get into like the film re-releasing business And by the 1980s, you had the rise of like home video, which made owning the rights to old movies way more lucrative than, say, the just theatrical re-releasing business. When the Golden Turkey Awards book came out, Williams almost kind of used that as like a guide to seek out some of these old movies that had had their copyright lapse that nobody cared about, but were being talked about in this book so that he could get the rights re-release them and kind of establish them as cult films on the midnight movie circuit okay so you know he got the rights to invader from mars he got the rights to like robot monster things like this um he acquired the rights to plan nine from outer space because that was the worst movie ever made and when he acquired those rights um he you know found himself talking to edward's widow kathy and learning about night of the ghouls this finished ed wood movie that ed never released because he couldn't pay the film development lab 
So Wade Williams calls up the development lab and he's like, do you still have this? Turns out they did just, you know, waiting for someone to pay that bill, which presumably by that point had a bunch of like interest. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully they weren't calculating interest. And so Williams like bought the negative bought the rights, paid the film lab, and released Night of the Ghouls for the first time officially on VHS in 1984. Um, So the version of Night of the Ghouls that you'll see, um, whatever credit there was for some kind of film production company at the start, like So-and-So Presents, has literally been like grayed out on the print with Wade Williams Presents in the same font put over, And the title card has had kind of a similar statement so that there's now a copyright 1984 Wade Williams Productions at the bottom. This is kind of what Williams did. Like he would buy the rights to these old movies and then copyright them with his own production company so that even if they were lapsed public domain films, he was like, well, now I own the copyright, which is questionably legal. Yeah. Uh, But he put Night of the Ghouls out in 1984 And then when the Wade Williams collection started being put out on DVD in the early 2000s by Image Entertainment, um, this was put out by Image Entertainment in 2004, either as like a solo release or in their Ed Wood collection box set. Um, Wade Williams is kind of a controversial figure in film preservation and film archiving because of the fact that he rescued all of these old movies. We wouldn't have them today if not for him, but he really jealously protected the idea that he had the copyright on them now and that only he could release them. Uh, yeah. And he would like really viciously go after other people and do lawsuits against other people when his own ownership of the rights to these movies was kind of like tentative to begin with. Like he would buy the negatives to these old movies and be like, cool, this means I own the copyright to the movie now. And that's not quite how that works. But because he did own the negatives, it meant that he was also the only source for like, good prints anyways right so kind of a controversial figure in that regard um and so because of the fact that he kind of owns night of the ghouls lock stock and barrel in a way that you know he doesn't really with plan nine and these other movies um night of the ghouls is kind of like one of the lesser seen edward movies it's the trivia question edward movie right where it's like he made it it was never released came out way later that kind of thing sure So how are we watching it then? Uh, So, you know, we've got a copy of the Image Entertainment DVD. And um, I've also put a YouTube link on our playlist. Okay. Well, folks, if you would like to see that playlist, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Night of the Ghouls from 1959, directed by Ed Wood. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Night of the Ghouls from 1959, directed by Ed Wood. Ben, what did you think of this? 
Well, this is my first time seeing this. Okay. And it wasn't worth the wait. Whoa. Okay. I think that I enjoyed this more than Plan 9 from Outer Space. Wow. Because it's simpler. Sure. But I, I don't know. I had a fine time. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. All right. I think we're going to have potentially an interesting discussion here. Okay. About, about what makes a bad movie good. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, why don't I tell people what the movie is? Sure. Yeah. Um, we, we do get, you know, not quite a fully linear story because that's how you fill time. But long story short, we do see that a um, couple of teens are making out. Guy gets a little too pushy about it. So girl leaves the car and goes running around in the woods and is attacked by the black ghost. And then um, when the guy catches up, he too is attacked. And it's clear with voiceover that these two are killed. And Criswell, the amazing Criswell, after... You know, he introduces the movie and kind of sets up that, like, we're going to learn the true story about what happened to these two deaths. Then we cut to the police station where we see two scared uh, old people, a couple of grandparents here at the precinct because they saw a ghost around um, the old house on Willow Lake, also known as the old mad scientist house where um, Bride of the Monster took place. So Inspector Robbins sends for Detective Bradford to investigate because uh, he apparently also looked into the mad scientist at this old house. And so this is right up his alley. Um, as been explained in the context setting, that's a retcon because he wasn't, or rather this character wasn't actually in Bride of the Monster. But he's set on this case um, despite, you know, being in the full tuxedo because he was going to the opera. Uh, Patrolman Kelton is supposed to go with, despite his own scooby, shaggy scarediness. Um, now, he does arrive after Bradford because of shenanigans that I won't go into. Bradford, meanwhile, he arrives at the house, heads inside, and meets Dr. Acula, who turns out to be like a medium, doing some seances, uh, bringing back the dead, you know, whatever. Uh, and during one of the seances that Bradford gets to witness, um, it's mainly focused on this old widow named Maud and her um, fiancé, who is a young man who I'm going to name Harold, um, <laughs> and basically hoping to ask for Maud's dead husband's permission to marry this young man and the ghost of her old husband arrives and says yeah do it yolo <laughs> the seance gets a little interrupted um and during that interruption bradford kind of like leaves and then starts exploring and then we get the footage of final curtain for dr acula's part what interrupts him kind of pulls him away and we see the woman who has been the white ghost this whole time turns out to be his girlfriend playing a part. And he explains like, yeah, I'm a con man. And um, Harold uh, is a gigolo trying to get Maud's money and like we're going to split it between him. And then there's this other character who is like hoping for his like dead wife to be raised from the dead and is like giving 
uh, this con man money. Um, so it's all a ruse. Lobo is also here, who was not quite dead yet at the end of Bride of the Monster. There's also a, a, a henchman uh, who I'm just going to call Jimmy, because um, I don't think he actually gets a name. It might actually be Jimmy. It was just a stereotypical like henchman name. Throughout the film, Bradford goes exploring. Kelton gets scared, and eventually, um, individually, they face off against Lobo. Uh, Kelton does like shoot Lobo full of slugs and doesn't stop him one bit. But then some backup arrives with the inspector and two other policemen um, who end up killing Lobo with their guns and interrupt the seance and are on the hunt for Dr. Acula. Uh, who tells Jimmy, that other henchman, to like hold them off while he and his girlfriend escape. Jimmy does terribly and is immediately shot and killed. But Dr. Acula manages to kind of escape through like an underground passageway when he and his girlfriend meet ghosts that he apparently summoned. Uh, one of them includes Criswell. And Criswell explains that like, yeah, you were actually like a powerful medium, more powerful than you could have imagined. Uh, and every 13 years, like whoever is here with like medium powers gets like ramped up to high powers. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Uh, and so you've summoned us and, you know, we're about to head back to our graves, but we're going to take you with us. And so they kill Dr. Acula, take him into the coffin. Um, and so he dies. Now the girlfriend runs out and manages to escape, but then is lured by that black ghost, who actually is a ghost, uh, to a grave as well. And the police arrive to where Dr. Acula is in the coffin and sees a bunch of skeletons on the ground as well. And they're like, well, case closed. I don't know. The end. The end. That's the movie. Uh, as I said at the top, um, it's much more condensed than Plan 9 in the sense of, uh, you know, we don't have like aliens trying to invade and being stopped by love or something like it's uh, who cares? It, we're all in like the spooky house. So here's the thing, though, like, OK, so I didn't like this at all, basically. OK, I, I found no. OK, to be fair, Ed felt this needed more editing. So, you know. My biggest complaint about this movie is that nothing happens. Mm. Um, it's about 15 to 20 minutes worth of story in like a 70 minute package. It's a lot of people walking around. It's a lot of slow plodding shots of people slowly walking through empty scenery. And you have a ton of characters, yeah. most of whom are unnecessary at times, it seems like it's maybe trying to go for like a dreamlike feel of something like dementia, but this is always like interrupted by the very banal narration. Like whenever something starts to get a little bit atmospheric, we'll get narration from like Bradford being like, yep, that is a door handle I'm holding or whatever. That Dude has kills the, the hairiest mood. hands I've ever seen. <laughs> I hear what you're saying. I will say um, the stuff that was clearly taken from Final Curtain was pretty good. Yeah, it looks good. I think overall this might be the best looking 
mm-hmm. Edward movie. It's the same cinematographer he's always been using, uh, William C. Thompson, who we actually know way, 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 way back in the day was a good cinematographer. Yeah. So it's nice to see him polish off his skills again. And I'll just add a, a little asterisk to my, like, the final curtain stuff looked good mm. because anything of Edward's will look good when it's taken out of context. A lot of the challenge of Ed Wood's movies are in the full construction mm. with its pacing. See, I would say that this looks better than his other movies in the sense that like there's more, the lighting is more volumetric, like there's more good use of light and shadow. Shots aren't as flat. Um, there's still a lot of like flat, boring two shots and masters that go on for way too long. But you are right, like the stuff from Final Curtain looks pretty good. Um, also, like anything with the two ghosts is shot pretty well, like backlighting through fog. It's a lot of the stuff that he was trying to do on Plan 9 that he's doing yeah. a lot better here. I also think that Lobo's makeup is pretty good. Oh, Lobo's makeup is surprisingly good. Like yeah. When he shows up, it's kind of like a shock that it, like, it's gruesome, but it's also a shock that it looks so gruesome yeah right? he's got like bullet holes and like one big burnt half of his face it looks really good unfortunately the like editing doesn't do anything to help the shock be shocking because everything in this movie is edited slow yeah um it, it's got that like i said almost dreamlike pace but that doesn't really help things here there aren't any performances in this movie that have any kind of like energy or charisma Big Dick as Dr. Acula is just like, it's like he, he kind of comes across as like John Wayne on sleeping pills. Yeah. As soon as he pointed out that he sounds like John Wayne, that's all I could hear. And it was incredibly distracting and a little hilarious. It makes sense because um, both Ken Duncan and John Wayne worked with Yakima Knut. And that voice is Yakima Knut's voice, right? Yeah. So it makes some sense. But yeah, like everyone i don't know the whole movie has this very like sleepwalking tone uh and the writing has none of the bizarre inanity that makes other edward movies kind of fun i will say for dr acula the stuff he was saying particularly during the seance had the edward quality that we're always looking for the thing is what's kind of fascinating about this movie is on a craft level, I think it's poorly edited. I think it's way too slow. I think barely anything happens. But, you know, I can't I can't strike against Ed too much for that because he knew that. He knew this needed more editing. So I can't bang on that drum too hard. But what is interesting to me is, like, maybe this is on some level better than Plan 9 in the sense of, like, the plot is more succinct. Mm-hmm. Everything makes a lot more sense. You know, um, we're not trying to do too much with too little, but it's almost too far the opposite direction. Like nothing mm. happens. There's no ambition. We're trying to do not really much at all. It's a very old hat plot that we're barely putting any kind of effort into. Um, and ultimately, it's this weird uncanny valley parabola with bad movies mm. where it's almost like the more competent the movie is the less interesting it is like where we kind of end up at least for me with this movie is at boring and plan nine from outer space 
might be a worse movie on several like technical levels, but it's more interesting for me to watch. It's more entertaining for me to watch because of how bonkers it is, because of how many crazy things it's doing. Whereas there's nothing really here. There's nothing going on in this movie. I was struggling to stay awake. That's fair. I think you hit the nail on the head with there not being any ambition here. Because, yeah, I, I was feeling like this was, um, it's definitely an Ed Wood movie. Um, it's not like it, it's lost any kind of quality like that. But, yeah, it didn't quite feel like that passion was there it's, for him. It feels tired. Yeah, he's he's trying to do something, but as you kind of pointed out in the context setting, he's making this when Final Curtain kind of floundered. Um, Plan 9, which was kind of his like passion project, is like out in limbo. Um, so I think he's just like... I think you're right. He's absolutely tired and he, he's lost a little bit of the passion that he had for projects because he's been hit so many times while he's down. It's, it's one of the things that makes like ranking everything on a master list from best to worst kind of difficult. Sometimes when you hit movies like plan nine, where the appeal is their badness. Um, and there's sort of a fine science to, so bad it's good movies and like the appeal of bad movies like for me it really is like this parabola where the more the worse it is to a more insane bizarre degree the more entertaining it is like as you're watching the movie and going what like what am i looking at you know your robot monsters, your plan nines, your fantasy mission forces. Like when you watch these movies and you're just asking like, what am I watching? It's so much more entertaining than just sort of a blah story, not really done well. There are what I will call interesting choices in this movie that I don't think are done um, because of like, oh, that's an interesting thing thing because you're trying to do something that you're just not reaching it's just like that was just an odd choice Mm -hmm. so case in point is during the seance scene we get frequent shots and audio clips of a floating trumpet playing poorly we hear a slide whistle as there is a ghost on screen uh, and by ghost i mean a floating sheet uh like hovering left to right on the screen And then a floating something that sometimes looks like a giant eye and then it moves around and you're like, I think that's just a lamp. Yeah. Or like a machine part or something. There's a whole thing where like Dr. Acula's got voices coming from beyond the grave and one of them is apparently just provided by like Louis Armstrong, like standing off screen or something. Yeah, it's... uh... It's weird. That was a little uncomfortable for me. Yeah, it's just this like black guy who's otherwise not in the movie at all, who's just saying things as if he's in slow motion. Yeah, it it came off very much as like a, oh, like this guy's talking weird. Yeah. So he's not white. Ooh. I don't know, man. It's very strange, but like, it's not strange enough. So much of Edward's like weird gender politics aren't really here. The kind of stuff that, you know, like the Angora fetish shows up 
a little bit right at the start because uh, the teen who gets killed by the black ghost has an Angora sweater. But like most of the like bizarre psychosexual stuff that makes his movies interesting, like isn't really present. It's very, very like toned down. And because of that, for me, at least it wasn't as entertaining to watch. It was just kind of boring. Most of the movies, just people walking around quietly while nothing happens. Yeah. So of the Ed Wood films that Mm -hmm. I've seen, that would be Glenn or Glenda, Plan 9, Bride of the Monster, and now Night of the Ghouls. And I think Night of the Ghouls is definitely the most tame, Mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, Almost like mainstream comparatively, which is especially weird given Bride of the Monster existing. Um, And I think Bride of the Monster is probably my favorite out of those four. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to just move on into ranking? Yeah, I didn't mean to jump the gun there. That's all right. The thing is, is like the difficulty here is the difficulty of how do you rank so bad it's good movies? Um, Because for me, I would say Bride of the Monster is the best Edward movie we've seen um, or have like ranked for the podcast um, quite easily. It's got energy. It's got like a good central performance from Bella Lugosi. It's got like decent sets um, and it's just weird enough and bizarre enough to like make you laugh and kind of like get involved with how weird it is, but it's just competent enough that it's watchable. Yeah. Um, And Kelton's good in it. Like Kelton as a police officer, he he's competent. Whereas in this, He really is just a shaggy, scooby mockery. Yes, he's a keystone cop here. Um, And then Plan 9, where do we have Bride of the Monster and Plan 9 ranked, Bride of the Monster is ranked at number 176, and Plan 9 from Outer Space is ranked at 192. Okay, so the thing about Plan 9 is, like, Plan 9 is on the scale of, like, so bad it's good movies plan nine is the one you want to watch not bride of the monster on the scale of like ed wood actually managing to pull off what he's trying to do bride of the monster is the better movie but plan nine is still entertaining for its like sheer zaniness for all the like memes it has spawned you know all the oh he knocked over the thing and hey that's his chiropractor whatever There's not really enough of that here. So while I think this is like a more competent movie, it's not as entertaining for me. But what about for it as a horror movie? I think that I have to rank it below Plan 9 from Outer Space. I don't think it's as good. I think that while it might be more competent and it might be a movie that makes a a lot more sense... And some of the shots of the ghosts might even be like more atmospheric than anything Plan 9 pulls off. For me personally, this movie is really, really boring and it's really kind of sad. And I would much rather be watching Plan 9, which is, I think, a lot more fun. For me, I ranked this really low. Okay. Um, I have a spot picked out and that spot is number 236 which is below all of the Melies shorts, uh, but above the British Monkey's Paw from 1948, which was just 
awful. Everything below 236 is basically movies that are not competent at being movies, which I think Night of the Ghouls manages to achieve. It achieves base level competence, but like it never rises to have a pulse above that for me. When I was ranking, I, like I said, I felt this was better than plan nine. So I actually had a range of like a couple spots Mm. and I was looking at number 183, the she creature as my ceiling and as my floor, 185 giant from the unknown because giant from the unknown has like uh, Charlie Brown with a gun, that one, which was boring, but wild. As I'm looking down the list from my floor down to where you were looking, there's movies that I'm like, oh, really? Ben's thinking of putting this below The Neanderthal Man. But that movie pushes boundaries. That movie has uh, energy behind it. There's others that are like Bride of the Gorilla from Kurt Siedmak. That movie is at 203. So um, I think it makes sense for Night of the Ghouls to go below that as well. It's it's tough, right? Because of that, like, how do you rank bad movie? And how do you rank bad movies when you might like a bad movie more because it's worse, right? And how do you translate that to the list? But ultimately, like, so much of the fandom around 1950s horror and sci-fi is of the so bad it's good, like, fun, that the value of a lot of these movies is kind of their unique bizarreness you know the fact that bride of the gorilla is really horny for raymond burr um (laughs) i mean who isn't so one thing i'll point out is that uh you like to bring up misa of lost women Mm. as a terrible poorly constructed slightly boring does have a wild element to it but it doesn't do enough with it kind of movie and that's ranked at number 225 Yeah, um, right above that is The Unearthly, which also has Tor Johnson as Lobo. Um, Kind of similar plot elements here as well of like con man situation. But I think The Unearthly, as much as it kind of upsets me because of the way that it treats like mental health stuff, has more character, has more going on. It's not like just a bunch of nondescript people. Um, The characters have personalities. I would agree. And what actually got me looking down in the 230s is the astounding She-Monster at 231, which is terrible. Um, That's the one with the alien babe with Vulcan eyebrows who chases them around the cabin in and out at night. This movie's better than that, Ben. Okay. Right above that is Wolfblood. Yeah, dude. Uh, I'm thinking we replace Misa of Lost Women at 225. Because I feel you about the unearthly, but things below me have lost women just had me tearing my hair out at times. Whereas I, like I said, I didn't hate Night of the Ghouls in the same way that you seem to. Um, I really appreciated a lot of the craft level going into the atmosphere mm-hmm. parts of it. It's still a bad movie, but it's not The Monster Walks from 1932. You know, it's not Wolf Blood. Okay, I see what you're saying. It should get some points for like the atmosphere, for the craft. It's really unfortunate that you can see Ed Wood improving as a director and becoming less interesting as a filmmaker as yeah. a result. Um, that really kind of is unfortunate here. And I think that one of the most unfortunate things about Night of the Ghouls is 
you kind of hope that those movies that are like those discoveries, right? Where it's like, this is the lost Ed Wood movie, you know, stuck in the lab for 30 years. But it makes sense that like, this hasn't eclipsed plan nine from outer space that like nobody really talks about night of the ghouls, even though it hasn't been lost like since the eighties, like we've had this since the eighties and it's still kind of talked about as the lost one because there's not a lot here to discuss. And I think Ed Wood himself knew he didn't have passion for this project because Ed Wood strikes me as someone similar to Orson Welles in their tenacity for their craft And Orson Welles always found a way to get the money for his project. Mm. And Ed Wood found ways to get money for his projects, like Plan 9. But he just got hit too many times and was just kind of like, yeah, I'll take the L. You know, I'll leave it at the printers, whatever. Yeah, he never... um... Like, it's not like this is the last Ed Wood movie, right? Like, he goes on and he does other stuff, and it spirals farther and farther away from, like, mainstream Hollywood cinema. But, like, he got the money to do that stuff, so he never used that money to come back and, like, get Night of the Ghouls out of hawk, as it were. So I think you're right in that he kind of recognized that there wasn't really a lot here worth saving. So, yeah, I agree with you here. I think uh, this is the right spot below the unearthly and above Misa of Lost Women. At the new number 225, it's Night of the Ghouls, directed by Ed Wood from 1959 or 84. Take your pick. (laughs) If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can help us out by leaving a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice, subscribing to the show through our RSS feed, talking about the show online or with your friends to help uh, people find out about it through word of mouth or if you want to help out uh, you know with keeping the lights on here at the new castle scream scene with all these new and different bills we have now you know there's (laughs) the expanded moat more alligators the the cost of food for the mummies in the basement it just it's it's a lot uh you can listen i can only find so many daddies You can head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the five or $10 level get access to regular bonus content and patrons of all levels get to vote in our monthly polls to determine each month's horror adjacent bonus episode. The poll for August will be to determine the movie for September. So if you want to check that out, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, I don't know what to expect. We are back at Universal International for a weird Western, which is a subgenre. I I don't think we've really come across yet. No, there have been ones made in that subgenre, and I've kind of steered us away from them. But uh, in this case, with it being a Universal film, it might be like, you know, worth taking a look at. It's the rather generically named Curse of the Undead. Ah, That could be any number of movies. Exactly. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.